Welcome to The Everyday Therapist. I'm Dr. Deb, and this is my channel where we talk about everything having to do with psychology, both from a research point of, search point of view and a clinical point of view. And I have been talking for the last couple of times about trauma. Well, we're going to continue to talk about trauma because it is a very important topic in terms of people's psychological well-being. Now, in the previous episode, I discussed about the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal, uh, adrenal axis, HPA. Um, and that is very important in terms of how we deal with stress. Uh, hypothalamus produces a certain kind of hormone, which then triggers the pituitary to uh, release certain hormones that then cause the adrenal glands to release certain kinds of hormones. And you can go back to the previous video to check that all out. However, I did point out that yes, trauma is results in stressful um, situations, but trauma is more than just stress. It is like stress multiplied many times. And so there are some other aspects of the brain that become involved during trauma. One really important area is called the amygdala. And I'm going to show you where the amygdala is. Here we go. Now, the amygdala, there are two of them um, on each side of the brain, and they are about the size of an almond. And in fact, the word amygdala comes from the ancient Greek, amygdala, that means almond. And the amygdala um, are uh, areas of, of neurons that are very specific. They are involved with emotional learning uh, and visual processing. And they respond in terms of, of stress and trauma by releasing certain hormones themselves. So uh, in the first video, I talked about the various kinds of responses that one has in a traumatic situation. Fight, flight, freeze, and collapse. Well, the hormones that are produced by the pituitary uh, gland, namely the adrenocortical hormones, such as adrenaline and noradrenaline, they exist to help you be ready to flee or fight in a, in a traumatic situation. Now, the amygdala release endorphins. Now, endorphins are considered to be sort of feel-good feel uh, chemicals, in that they make a person feel relaxed and sort of pulled away from situations, sort of depersonalized basically. And the brain releases endorphins when it thinks that the traumatic situation is going to cause major pain or death. And so it releases it so the body is prepared to just feel calm, comfortable, and potentially collapse, be ready for that collapse. Now, Knowing this is very important because sometimes we can take in outside uh, elements that will bind to the same receptors as the endorphins do. And those outside uh, elements are opioids, such as uh, oxycotton or heroin or those sorts of things. Those bind to the same uh, cells as do the endorphins. So 
when we discuss trauma and addiction, knowing that will be very important. Um, just for a little heads up on that, for example, there was a research study done a few years ago looking at how, I'm going to stop, share for now, uh, looking at how veterans who had been diagnosed with PTSD compared to veterans who had not been diagnosed with PTSD when shown uh, scenes of battle uh, and other sorts of traumatic things, situations, the veterans who had been diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, their endorphin level was much greater after watching those traumatic scenes than the veterans who had not been so diagnosed. So what that implies is in a traumatic situation, the brain is likely to produce endorphins to help the human manage through the situation. And the amygdala is, again, here's our brain model from the first episode. The amygdala is in the mammalian part of the brain. So it starts functioning before the cerebral cortex or the more human part of the brain starts to work. I also mentioned that the amygdala, in addition to producing endorphins, is responsible for emotional memory and uh, the coding of visual things. So in a traumatic situation, which is very emotional, many times that trauma is remembered only at, as a picture or a series of pictures without any words attached. And we call these flashbulb memories. They are different than your standard kind of memory. And in the future, I'll, I'll be addressing that as well. So initially, this uh, episode was going to focus on the firing and wiring of neurons together to make some basic units and why that is important when we talk about trauma. So let me share my screen again, and I will bring up a picture of your basic neuron. Hold on, please bear with me while I get the right picture. Okay, here's a, a neuron, a picture of a neuron. Sorry that I'm bringing up other people's pictures, but I don't draw very well. So I would rather just have somebody else's picture shown to you. So here's a neuron. And if we look at it, we have the nucleus of the neuron. Here's the whole cell body plus the what's called the axon. And the neuron uh, has these things called dendrites. And the dendrites will connect with other neurons through their ends down here, they, they will have what are called synapses, which uh, are the, the den, uh, dendrites with these little ends called the axon terminals. And there'll be a little space between the this neuron and the next one. And that's called a synapse. Now, when a neuron fires, it, it's an electrical um, function and it will fire and it'll go down down the axon, and then there'll be a chemical change between the two neurons, and the next neuron will fire. And in a situation, if neurons will connect. Say, for example, you're learning to tie your shoes. Well, as you start to do it, you learn the various motor steps. Uh, you think about how you tie your shoes, 
And as you do so, certain neurons will start working together to, to actually get you to tie your shoes. However, at the more you do the task of tying your shoes, more uh, quickly you get to do it, and it becomes automatic. It becomes what we call, call overlearned behavior. And the reason this happens is because this thing called the myelin sheath, initially when you're learning a new task, there is no myelin sheath on any of the, the connecting neurons. But as one does the task over and over, the myelin sheath builds up and it allows the electrical impulse to sort of jump quickly, more quickly down the axon, thus firing more quickly and then firing the next neuron more quickly. And so all of these neurons begin to fire much more rapidly. And that's what we call wiring. They fire together and then they wire together as units. So if you think about it, you don't have to think about how you tie your shoes. You just do it. And that's because it's so overlearned and it is basically a unit of behavior that you know really, really well. Now, things in our environment can basically trigger uh, how we behave in certain situations. For example, uh, if you're out um, grocery shopping, for example, and I'm going to give an example from something that just happened today. I went to the grocery store. I see somebody I know. I immediately say, hi, how are you? Um, because that's what you do in social situations. It's a well-learned behavior. And it was triggered by me seeing my friend. So that's a pretty simple example. But the thing is, in a trauma situation, after the trauma has happened, uh, a person may replay those, those pictures and emotions over and over in his or her mind uh, to the point that those fears and phobias become wired together. And something in the environment might happen and then trigger those fears to happen, to happen and bring up the situation again. Um, for example, somebody was bitten by a dog uh, and became very much uh, concerned about possibly being bitten again, well, that person may think over and over and over again about dogs and be very reluctant to be around where dogs are because if that person saw a dog, the anxiety associated with being afraid of being bitten again would come to the forefront. And those neurons associated with those thoughts would be fired and creating a lot of anxiety. So that's how triggers work in terms of almost everything, but they are especially important in terms of, of trauma because a lot of times people don't know why they're triggered because when something is a very traumatic situation, frequently the brain works in a way so that you don't remember it. In fact, in my experience, people remember the middle level traumas, the ones such as, well, when I was three, I had to have my tonsils out. So I was alone in the hospital and I remember standing in the crib crying or something like that. That's a medium level trauma, but the really major traumas, uh, 
such as abuse and things like that, especially for a very young child, those tend to be totally blocked out, but they are still there. And those blocked out traumas still uh, can be triggered or the emotions associated with them can still be triggered by things in the environment. And next time, when I talk more about how trauma affects people through their life cycle, starting with, okay, the trauma that an infant may have and how that might affect all the way to adulthood, um, it'll become clearer in, the, in those sorts of situations. So this was going to only be a very brief discussion about firing and wiring and the amygdala, uh, but I still want to leave you all with a little task, uh, not task, but a little way to address anxiety, because that's what I've been doing in the last couple of videos is sharing a little bit of information that, that can help. Now, in the first video, I talked about breathing and how that can uh, affect one's heart rate. In the last video, I talked about tapping. This time, I'm going to talk about tossing a ball. Now, this is one of those balls that you put in the dryer to help fluff up your clothes as, as they're drying. So it's made out of wool and it's very soft. So if I throw it at, at the camera, it's not going to hurt anything. And since I tend to be clumsy, uh, I'm not going to break anything. But if, say, you're thinking about something and you're feeling anxious or angry or any sort of large emotion going on, you can take a ball like this and start tossing it. And since you have to focus on tossing it and catching it, that sort of distracts your mind from that initial focus, that emotional focus. And then if you add in the breathing, breathe out, you know, breathe in as you throw it out, breathe out, exhale as you, as you catch it. That will also help relieve, relieve some of the anxiety. It'll help tamp things down. So that's a good task to, uh, strategy for reducing anxiety. Another one, uh, Probably many of you have that sort of negative voice in your head, that sort of critique, uh, critic that's always critiquing whatever you're doing. Well, there's a really good way to kind of calm that one down too. So what you do is so you hear that little voice and you have control over that voice. You can start making it sing its criticism you're so bad, you're so bad, you're so terrible, or whatever. And then as it sings it, start trying to project it elsewhere in your body, like to your big toe. So your big toe is singing at you. And eventually you get to the point where you realize it's just something that's not really there, something I can control. So that's another little, little uh, tactic you can use. So as I said, for the next time, I'm going to be talking more about trauma as and its effects on people at different ages of when it occurs. So if this information has been useful, um, please give it a like, subscribe if you wish. And if you have friends or family members who could benefit from this kind of information, please pass it along. And so I'll see you the next time. Bye now.